0: It's a series! Episode one of a series! I'm so excited! Welcome to this week's edition of An Hour of Your Life. My name is Kim.
1: And I am Steve. And like Kim said, we are starting a series. And that is why we are delayed this week, because we did a lot of research and Wait, did, by we
0: he means he did a lot of research. I didn't do anything. Steve okay. did a lot of research.
1: I I thought we were going to I was going to be able to put this together quickly, but with the topic that we're doing, which is the revolution, the American Revolution, it we had to go really really deep into this and there was just no way that we could put it out yesterday and do this topic justice. In fact, we thought it was going to be one week <laughs> One episode pre revolution, next week revolution, the third week post revolution. But there is just so much material, and we wanted to cover this in depth that it's going to take at least two weeks, two episodes to get through the pre revolution to so, set this story up right.
0: So, what's our timeline look like for this series? Do you want to tell them?
1: Our timeline?
0: Yeah, because we were going to talk. So, you, so you, we were thinking, right, two weeks of pre revolution. And then one week of the isn't, revolution. Isn't that what I just did? And then one week, but the week the week of 4th of July, which is why we're starting it now, because oh. all of this leads up to the 4th of July is kind of what we're going for.
1: Oh, I get you.
0: All right. So then we are going to cover my very favorite founding father. But we're going to
1: keep that a secret for we right now. We uh,
0: are. I just... Uh, if you know anything about the founding fathers, you can probably maybe guess. He's a, he's a debaucher. We'll
1: okay. Say, we'll say that much. <laughs> Enough said right, right. there. So... It like I said, it took we wanted to do this topic right. so it it took a lot more in-depth research than I really anticipated. but before we get started with this show, I want to take a moment. Patrick Opie Kelly was a soldier I served with a long time ago back in Germany in a very, very special unit. And Opie was a few years younger than me. And Opie passed away unexpectedly this week, and I will be going to um, Opie's service in West Memphis, Arkansas later on later on this week. But just want to take a moment to remember. Opie, and what a what a great man he was, and he's going to be missed by a lot of people. He's just one of those guys, he was everybody's friend. He was like one of those mm-hmm. big, gentle, giant-type guys.
0: I didn't even know Opie until uh, Steve started doing reunions with this unit, and Opie quickly became one of my favorite people um, in the unit. There's just a, a, a small group that um, I especially am, am really close to, and Opie was one of those, and I... Unfortunately, yeah. I started a new job this week and won't be able to go uh, to the funeral with him, um, which breaks my heart, frankly. But, uh, but you know, thoughts with, with Patrick Kelly's family and with all the 275th guys and uh, just... Yeah.
1: Rest in peace, Opie. Yeah. Okay, so we are getting ready for the 4th of July or the Independence Day show. As our British friends say... Happy Treason Day, and sometimes we see that shirt.
0: I have that shirt. It says, it's got a picture of a British flag, and it says, Happy Treason Day, you ungrateful colonials.
1: Yeah, so apparently it's known by other things in different countries.
0: (laughs) I mean, it depends on which side of history you're on.
1: But apparently, leading up to a revolution is very, very complicated, and it takes a lot of time. In the case of the American patriots, it actually took a lot to lead them to the point of war. And look, all American kids, at least in the state of Ohio, learn about the Revolutionary War and about the fourth grade mm-hmm. during U.S. history block of social studies. And I think that's when I remember learning about this, and we even cur- confirmed this with Kellen, who's going into sixth grade. Yep. And she goes, yeah, that's we learned about the Revolution in the fourth grade. And I kind of quizzed her (laughs) about what they learned and it was what i remember yeah and so we wanted to give you a more in-depth detail than what the fourth grader
0: but hopefully not make it boring
1: yeah hopefully we're gonna go beyond the fourth grade level and take a deep dive into events that change that literally change the world i've seen some memes that ask some kids that are going around right now that ask kids what did you learn while you were being homeschooled during quarantine?
0: Oh, I can imagine. Yeah, well, the kinds one, of new language. One of, the,
1: one of the kids said, I learned that dad was not smarter than a fifth grader. So for our international <laughs> friends, there's a TV show, a TV game show called Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? Where basically fifth graders and parents, they, they compete against each other and they're asked questions that the typical fifth grader should know. And,
0: and the adults usually get them wrong. Yeah, I have to admit that early on in pandemic education, I was trying to help Kellen with math, and I may or may not have used my Amazon Echo to help me because I couldn't and remember you may formulas. Or may not,
1: you may or may not have <laughs> said, Steve, come in I here, I need some help. I may or
0: may not have still gotten it wrong, and <laughs> Kellen may or may not still bring it up all the time. <laughs> so She
1: passed. Okay. She did.
0: That's all that matters.
1: I think when we go back to school, I think... and. Confirmed us with Kellen that we are taught the basics about the Revolutionary War. I mean, we we learned about Paul Revere's Midnight Ride, the Boston Tea Party, the Declaration of Independence. But
0: I I, I do want to interrupt you one more time. I know you're going to hate me for all these interruptions. But if I would you, never hate you, you're going to get frustrated at me for all these. That interruptions. might happen. So. We a few years ago went to Boston and walked the Freedom Trail um, in Boston. And you get to go see, uh, like, Paul Revere's house is still standing um, where he had, I think it was where he had his blacksmith shop, wasn't it? And
1: he was a silversmith, or
0: silversmith, whatever the guys that make things out of metal. Um, don't look at me like that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. No, I was just thinking that thing. Are you smarter than a fifth grader? (laughs) Are you?
0: Are you smarter than Kim? It doesn't take much. Um, so anyway, if my point was, if you get the chance to go to Boston, I highly recommend walking the Freedom Trail. It is, it's, it's a full day. Like you need to wear good shoes, comfy shoes and plan for a full day, but it is really neat. And it's actually really easy to follow. It's a a literal brick road that goes all over this city of Boston. It's It's really cool. Yeah.
1: Now it didn't go to where the tea party was. You kind of had to detour from that. Yeah. But it really took you through Old Boston, through the Old North Church, through yeah. Paul Revere's house and where a lot of the historical where where the Boston Massacre occurred. Mm-hmm. It I highly recommended if you can do it. Was it accessible like wheelchair se- accessible? I think it so. was. Yeah, I think most you could go to. Um them, yeah. and
0: the I forget the name of the cemetery, but there's the cemetery where um uh, is it Sam Adams is buried there? I believe so. Uh, and and actually, Mother Goose, like the actual yeah. Mary Goose, is buried at the same cemetery. It's it's really really cool. So you absolutely, if you get the opportunity, you should definitely check it out.
1: Yeah. So, right. like we're saying, you know, in school, in elementary school, fourth grade, when you study and you learn about the American Revolution, at least for us in the state of Ohio, how they did it. You're going to learn about Paul Revere's Midnight Ride, the Boston Tea Party, the Declaration of Independence, but we're also going to, what we're going to cover into this, and this one is why I, and I'm I'm kind of ashamed that I didn't realize all this. I knew the basics, but I didn't know the depth of all this. But we're going to go into many of the acts, when I say the acts, that were passed by the British government and then... Um,
0: they're really long and dry, and you can find them online if you want to read them. We are going to give there you were, the Reader's Digest version. Yeah, and
1: there were counter-proposals, of course, by the colonists to counter whatever the British passed. And it, it's really interesting if you have time to sit down. And I think that's why it took longer than I yeah, expected, because you, I actually sat down and read through all these things to, is it to try readable? to learn. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's dry. Yeah. Especially when you get to the one... Talk about old
0: English. I mean, maybe not old English.
1: 57 proclamations, but whatever. (laughs) Um, But we're going to do this series. We're going to give it the time that it deserves. First, how we're going to cover this. First, we're going to cover the pre-revolution and what led up to the war. And it's definitely going to take two episodes to get through this. And we're going to take it right up to what everyone knows as the shot heard around the world. Then we're going to cover the war itself then once we have covered that, we're going to go into the post-war and the monumental efforts it still took to maintain. I mean, it didn't just happen.
0: Yeah, you can't just be like, oh, we have a revolution. We're all good now.
1: Yeah. Politics, today, there were politics back then, and there's a lot of things that we're involved with. So we're going to go in and we're going to cover that. We're going to try to keep it. So, like Kim said, so it's not dry, so it's halfway entertaining, but I think it's an important topic for us to go through. But it's going if our timing's right, it's going to lead us right up to the 4th of July with Kim's favorite Patriot that she was giving you some hints at. So gather your friends, sit back, take a drive while gas is still relatively cheap, and listen to our version, which <laughs> is...
0: <laughs> which will contain lots of interruptions and Steve getting frustrated at me.
1: B- but it's going to be very accurate because I like I checked this with a lot of sources. Because
0: we do What? We do our research and educate educate ourselves.
1: ourselves, Yeah. Yeah. And so listen to an hour of your life's version, which (laughs) this episode is going to take probably two hours, just the pre-revolution of our series on the American (laughs) revolution.
0: (laughs) All right. So there are a lot of things that led up to the American revolution.
1: I'm tired already.
0: Well, I just have like a little quick thing to say and then you can launch back into it because this is your baby. Um, a revolution, like you said, can be a lot more complicated than taxes and tea, although that's certainly part of it. And the part that I think a lot of us remember best is, um, the British levied taxes against us. So we threw all their tea into the Harbor and then kicked their butts and, and everybody was happy. Uh, and Mel Gibson was in there somewhere and, and, and that was it. And Alexander Hamilton sang some songs and,
1: and yeah, yeah.
0: uh, we talked a little bit about the French and Indian War last week in our blue jacket episode, but we're going to revisit it later and get more in depth because those um the events of the French and Indian War really were the the precursor. Without the without the French and Indian War, I don't know that the revolutionary war would have happened as quickly as it did. I think it I think it still would have happened, but I don't think it would have been a, the sense of urgency that you'll see as we as we kind of get into it
1: so let's start this story with the beginning of Europeans Europeans coming to the no, new world now we're not going to go all the way back to the Viking expeditions because they were most likely the first europeans that came to the new world so we're gonna mm-hmm. we're going to jump ahead a couple centuries right here and North America had been inhabited by in, in
0: Indigenous, indigenous people, <laughs> I know, for
1: thousands of years prior to 1492, and that's when Columbus sailed the ocean blue. But European exploration of North America began after Christopher Columbus' 1492 expedition across the Atlantic Ocean. And we all know they didn't land on North America proper, the continent, mm-hmm. he, he landed in the islands down southeast.
0: And if you didn't know that, now you know.
1: Now you know. But the Europeans were coming to the Americas to increase their wealth and broaden their influence over world affairs. English exploration of the continent commenced in the late 15th century with Sir Walter Raleigh when he established the, and he lived at the, uh, the colony of Roanoke in 1585.
0: Hmm, sounds yeah. familiar. So
1: if you want to learn more about Roanoke, you should go back, pause right now, or wait till this is over and listen to episode 31 because Roanoke is a story all in itself and um well worth the listen to.
0: It's a fascinating story. It, 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 I yeah. it's one of it's one of the oldest mysteries of our country. It is probably the oldest mystery of our country, I would say. Probably. I would think so.
1: Yeah. So with this or or the witches
0: um I don't know. I think Roanoke well I think Roanoke is older.
1: Okay. So, with the settlement of Jamestown on the Chesapeake Bay, the English established their first successful permanent colony in North America, which became known as the Colony of Virginia. Now, this would be 1607, and it is recognized as the beginning of the colonization of North America by Great Britain. In 1620, a group of Puritans established a second permanent colony on the coast of Cape Cod. And, yep, we are talking about the Pilgrims. And if you want to learn more about the Pilgrims and Thanksgiving, go back and listen to episode 18.
0: Man, it's almost like everything that we've done has been leading up to this point.
1: There's no more history for us to cover.
0: Oh, man. All right. Well, so there was an authorization of a royal charter... Uh, And the Hudson's Bay Company established the territory of Rupert's Land. Now, this was named after the king's cousin, not Not the the dog, dog. unfortunately. Although, Rupert's Land is right there on the south side of the bed.
1: I think he just wagged his tail when we said Rupert's Land.
0: Whatever. No, he's passed out. Anyway. um, So, Rupert's Land was in the Hudson Bay Drainage Basin. And it's generally in present-day Canada you know, I have been messing up so much on pronunciation and just general speaking in the last few episodes, you would think that I've never done a podcast before. Anyway, Rupert's Land also has some territory in the current U.S. So a lot of this um, early kind of territory boundary line, uh, this is part of the reason why we're pretty close with Canada is because we owned them for a little bit um, or at least... Our forefathers owned them for a little yeah, bit. Yeah, better. We we didn't, they were
1: colonized. We okay. didn't
0: own them. We were co-owned with them. Co. That at, is the
1: best way to describe at one this. point.
0: So, thank you, thank you. I did some of my homework. All right. So, uh, in both Virginia and Massachusetts, the colonists were doing really well. They were flourishing with some assistance from Native Americans, and you guys know all that stuff about the. Um, how the Native Americans had uh, you know, they they did their be- they they figured it was better to get on the good side of the colonists. And new world grains like corn kept the colonists from starving, while in Virginia tobacco provided a valuable cash crop. Now
1: and we're in- talking about importing yes. back back to the continent.
0: Yeah, Europe. yeah. So we that was one of the things is America, North America, um, and what would later become the United States had a lot more uh, fertile ground, maybe not a lot more, but it had fertile ground that in a more temperate climate. I think uh, th- we could grow things that they couldn't grow back in England. And, and it was just a
1: different climate.
0: And so, yeah, and so we could grow things that they couldn't grow necessarily. And so we, you know, this was this was prime real estate. Now, by the early seventeen hundreds, um, slavery started becoming a thing. Uh, so. Um, enslaved Africans actually were making up a growing percentage of the colonial population by the early 1700s. And then by 1770, more than 2 million people lived and worked in Great Britain's 13 North American colonies, which sounds like, like that's a pretty thriving group of, of people. I generally well, think... Especially
1: for back then.
0: Yeah, I, I always think of, when I think of people coming over from Great Britain and when I think of the Revolutionary War in this period, I think of, you know, groups of hundred or so people here and there scattered about. We're talking two million, so it is not a small population. And, of course, trade was an important part of the colonization, and so there's a general rundown. It sounds like everything's going good for Britain. We're doing all right with the Indians. And but it
1: just wasn't so. Yeah, yep. So now let's get into why and what led up to the colonists wanting their independence from England. It's a series of events of war and many different proclamations and acts by Britain to tax the colonists to pay to support the war. Maybe taxes would have been more tolerable, but all the good folks back in England weren't getting taxed quite as much as the colonists were. Yeah, that seems fair. Yeah, so that that was one of the things that kind of ticked all the colonists off
0: can't imagine why.
1: Also, there was no representation in Parliament. Um, King George was pretty much able to tax and pretty much do what he wanted to with the colonists. Now, that didn't settle well with the colonists. The colonists were generally very free-spirited and independent-thinking people, and they left England for a new life. Strong-willed might be the right term. Adventurous might be a good way to describe them. But these people had that sense of, free spirit. And that's why they left their homeland. They were just adventurous people and they wanted to start a new life. And so they left, they left Mother England and And got on the boat and came to North America.
0: And that's where sort of the American spirit comes from. You know, the, the stereotype of the American, I mean, there's so many stereotypes of Americans, but that stereotype of American is, you know, the Um, adventurous,
1: fly by the seat of
0: your pants, let's see what happens. It's
1: that same pioneer spirit that eventually drove the Americans west.
0: And that same, I'm sorry, I don't want to sound like an elitist. Never mind. I was going to say that same pioneer spirit that led us to invent the airplane and led us to the moon first and led us, I don't want to be the cocky American though. It's all right. Uh, Anyway. So let's be clear, though. Not all colonists wanted independence. Some people wanted to remain loyal to England and the crown because they figured... Uh, do, 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 do. Yeah, as best I can figure, do, do,
1: do, do, do. that's okay. where their
0: bread was buttered. You know, at least, all right, they might be taxing us, but at least, you know, they're pretty much taking care of us, sort of. Uh, and But, you know, England wasn't the only European country interested in the Americans, or the Americas, not the Americans, the Americas. Uh, France was a major player. Remember, they were trading pelts up north uh, in northern Ohio in with Hudson Iroquois Bay and, and Hudson Rupert's Bay. Land yeah. and
1: all that good place.
0: Uh, so France was a major player to a lesser extent for this time period. Spain was, was in there. Um, the Dutch were kind of a big deal.
1: That's where the pilgrims came from.
0: Mm-hmm. And so once the revolution started, alliances started to be formed with other countries. And we're going to talk more about that next week. But for now, let's backtrack to last week to the French and Indian War.
1: But we're going to go into a little bit more detail than last week. Right. So the final colonial war from 1689 to 1763 was what we called over here the French and Indian War. Now, this was the name given to the American theater of a massive conflict involving Austria, England, France, Great Britain, Prussia, Sweden... And they called it, you may have heard this called the Seven Years' War. Now, this arguably could be called a world war because it involved a good chunk of...
0: It did, and it was different things on different continents. So over here, we were fighting in North America. We were fighting the French. Over there in Europe, they were trying to uh, um, hold back the Prussians from trying to take over more of Europe.
1: Yeah, and so in Europe, Sweden, Austria, and France, they were allied to crush the rising power of Frederick the Great of Prussia. Mm-hmm. Um, the English and the French battled for colonial domination in North America, the Caribbean, and in India.
0: And also, the Caribbean was super important because what does the Caribbean have that everybody needs, especially for their tea? Rum. I was going with sugar, but okay. Okay. <laughs> I I know I know how you take your tea.
1: So, <laughs> the English did ultimately come to dominate the colonial outpost, but at such a staggering price and cost that the resulting debt nearly destroyed the English government. So, it was that debt that caused the escal- ex- escal- escalation
0: escalation of Good. tensions
1: leading to <laughs> the revolutionary war. Parliament was so desperate to obtain objectives um, to obtain two objectives: first, to tax the colonies to recover monies expended on the battle over North America and second, to restore the profitability of the East India Company in an effort to recover monies spent on the battlefield over India. So it's it's a global conflict. there's nice. no doubt. the French and Indian War was the beginning of open hostilities between the colonies and Great Britain.
0: Yeah, colonialism doesn't come cheap. Uh, so England and France had been steadily building toward a conflict in America since 1689. Um, Britain required raw materials like copper and hemp and tar and turpentine, which we all had over what are here. What were they doing with the hemp? Interestingly, <laughs> did you know, and I, I have to fact check this, but... I have heard that the Declaration of Independence is written on hemp paper. So uh, you can fact check that for yourself if you want. Um, But that's what I've heard, which would make sense because hemp is cheap to grow and it is extremely durable. So um, Britain, in addition to requiring hemp, they also required a great deal of money. And so they provided that all of these American products be shipped exclusively to England through something called the Navigation Act's. So, in other words, colonists, uh, you can't trade with the French anymore. You can't trade with anybody else but us. Send all of your stuff to us. Don't trade with anybody else. Now, we're going to talk about something called the Albany Congress.
1: And here's where it's all the politics. Well, I don't want to say where it starts,
0: but it starts
1: getting really complicated. Right right. now, all we've had to deal with is a war.
0: Right. (laughs) Simple. All right. So, in June of 1754... Representatives from seven colonies met with 150 Iroquois chiefs in Albany, New York. Now, remember, the Iroquois are North America, and they are pretty fierce, but they're also pretty shrewd business people. They were really good at trading and bartering. Um, And the purposes of the Albany Congress were twofold. First, the goal was to try to secure the support and cooperation of the Iroquois in fighting the French— And then also to form a colonial alliance based on a design by Mr. Benjamin Franklin. Uh, The plan of a union was passed unanimously, but when the delegates returned to their colonies with the plan, not a single provincial legislature would ratify it. Hmm. So it seemed like a good idea at the top, but once it got back to the colonies, not so much. Boom. I don't know that that was appropriate, but okay. Franklin's plan resembled the Articles of Confederation and would have provided for coordinated taxation and militia forces to defend the frontiers.
1: So was Benjamin kind of trying to be a loyalist at this point and avoid all this, or was he just trying to offer solutions? <sighs>
0: ben Franklin's a complicated guy, and we'll leave it at that for right now. Okay. Uh, do you think we're giving enough hints? Anyway. Yeah. Um, okay, so the colonies were wholly interested in overcoming the, French in, the French in North America. Um, they wanted the French out, you know, they're, they are British citizens, remember, so in their mind, the French are invading their homeland. Uh, and so they appealed to the king, the Americans did, the colonists did, ben Franklin. appealed to the king for permission to raise armies and monies to defend themselves against the French, now, despite sincere petitions from royal governors, George II was suspicious of the intentions of the mm. colonial governments and declined their offer. can't trust them any further
1: than you can throw them.
0: So he, I mean, I get it. You know, he's asking for money to raise people. We're here in America. We're asking money to raise an army back Home in England, well, why do you need an army? Are you going to try and rally against our troops? Like, why do you need an army for? We're here. We're protecting you. You're fine. However, the thing is, we're here. The English officers in America were really contemptuous of the colonials who volunteered for service. They were really kind of snooty. I mentioned the Patriot earlier. Um, the
1: With Mel Gibson? Yeah. Okay.
0: The portrayal of the British... uh soldiers in the Patriot as kind of, um, I don't know, up snooty and like lifting their noses up in the air and thinking they're better than everybody. I, as far as I know, that is a very accurate portrayal. A few of the men who signed the declaration of independence had actually been members of the volunteer militia. And as young men, they'd been dressed down and sent home when they applied for duty so such an experience was not uncommon, and it led communities throughout the colonies to question British authorities, who would demand horses and feed and wagons and quarters. But
1: quarters is in a place to stay, not yeah, like twenty-five like, cents. Worth yeah, of quarter. yeah,
0: like they would just come in to your house and they would say, "You, you have put me up for the night.
1: And That's coming.
0: Feed my horse while you're while you're at it." But while they're doing that, they're denying the colonials the right to fight in defense of the empire, which is a right that they considered central to their self-image as Englishmen. So right now you've got a little bit of an identity crisis. Like, aren't we, are we, are we Englishmen or are we colonialists in just our subjects. own land? Yeah. What, what are we? Why the, the crown says they're defending us against these foreign invaders but they won't give us the money or the provisions to raise our own army to allow us to defend ourselves. Why is that? What's going on? Where do, we, where do we fit in?
1: So right now we have the end of the French and Indian War. What does old King George do? He issues a proclamation.
0: I want to be a queen just so I can issue proclamations.
1: Well, King George did this one. And this proclamation he issued now was better known as the Proclamation of 1763. The end of the French and Indian War in 1763 was a great celebration in the colonies. It removed several ominous barriers and opened up a host of new opportunities for the colonists. The French had had effectively hemmed in the British settlers um, and had, from the perspective of the settlers, played the Indians against them. The first thing on the minds of the colonists was the great western frontier that had opened up to them, and so when the French ceded that con- uh, the contested territory, the British they thought we're going to move west. And that's going back to that pioneer mm-hmm. spirit. We're going to yeah. we're going to move, keep moving west out through here. We'll
0: get there, but not now. Well,
1: the Royal Proclamation of 1763 did much to dampen that celebration. The Proclamation, in effect, closed off the frontier to colonial expansion.
0: How did it do that, Steve?
1: Well, the king said, The king and his council presented the proclamation as a measure to calm the fears of the Indians who felt that the colonists would drive them from their lands as they expanded westward.
0: That's called foreshadowing, ladies and gentlemen.
1: Many in the colonies felt that the object was to pin them in along the Atlantic seaboard where they would be easier to regulate. So the king, I mean...
0: There's probably something to that.
1: Yeah, there, there's a lot going on right here. I mean, there's there's some gamesmanship that was going on. Yeah. Yeah, so no doubt there was a large measure in the truth of both these positions. However, the colonists could not help but feel a strong resentment when what they perceived to be prized land was snatched away from them. They wanted to move west and get away from the king's authority and his rule. The proclamation provided that all the lands west of the heads of all rivers which flowed into the Atlantic Ocean from the west or northwest were off-limits to the colonists. This included the rich Ohio Valley, and all the territory from the Ohio River to the Mississippi Rivers from settlement. And so, if you remember last week when we were talking about Blue Jacket, this is prime land for mm-hmm. hunting, for trapping, for pelts. So, yeah. there, there's a lot of stuff going on here. There's a lot of economic stuff going on. Plus, the king has wanted to keep all his
0: he wants peons to keep them all- under his thumb. Yeah. 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 No king wants to give up any authority. Yeah. I mean, you're the king, you need subjects. So the Proclamation also established four new colonies. It defined these four new colonies. Three of them were on the continent proper, in Quebec, which was, of course, already well settled. Um, Two colonies to to be called East Florida and West Florida, and the last being off the continent um, in Grenada. Now. These facts were established immediately, but most of the proclamation is devoted to the subject of Native Americans, Indians, and Indian lands. So the proclamation asserted that all of the Indian peoples were thereafter under the protection of the king. And it required that all lands within the Indian territory occupied by Englishmen were to be abandoned. Mm. So in other words, if you are living on Native American land... Get out.
1: You're getting yeah. evicted.
0: Yep. Uh, it also, so the proclamation included a list of prohibited activities, provided for enforcement of the new laws, and indicted unnamed persons for fraudulent practices and acquiring lands from the Indians in, in times past. So basically, it was, listen, Natives, we know that you aligned with the French, but we're gonna we're gonna make sure that you get all of your land back. We're gonna punish the people that took it from you, even though we don't know who they are. Uh, and we, you know, we're gonna we're gonna protect you. So I can see how that would feel like a slap in the face to the colonists. Um, the rest you must
1: have made the Native Americans feel pretty good, though.
0: I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we kind of know how that plays out, but. Um, resolution of the hostilities of the French and Indian War was a difficult problem for the crown. Most of the Indian tribes, like I said, had been allied with the French during the war because they found the French less hostile and generally much more trustworthy than the English settlers. Bonjour. Now the French would depart, and the Indians were left behind to defend themselves in their grounds as best they could, and relations between the Indians and the the English colonials were so poor that few settlers would argue in public that the Indians had rights to any lands. So King George wanted to give them all this land. Meanwhile, the colonialists were like, nah, we, that's our land. We took that, that, we own that now, that's ours. So in this proclamation, the king incited with the Indians against the perceived interests of the settlers. And on top of that, It provided, and Parliament soon after executed, British royal posts along the proclamation boundary. So not only are we taking all of the lands that you feel like you are entitled to, colonialists, but we're also going to establish military posts along this proclamation boundary, so if you do try to push past us, then you're going to be in trouble.
1: So why would they do that?
0: Oh, gee, I don't know. Why? Um, Parliament was under no illusions about relations between the Indians and the colonists. They understood that the colonists would not respect the boundary without Hmm. some enforcement mechanism. A little
1: free spirit moving on here.
0: And finally, the English were interested in improving the fur trade, which involved the Indians and the independent trappers who lived out on the frontier on the other side of the barricade. So uh, things are starting to get heated up a little bit.
1: Yeah. So the proclamation line extended from the Atlantic coast at Quebec to the newly established border of West Florida. Uh, Establishing and manning the post along the length of this boundary was another very costly undertaking for the king and for Great Britain. The British ministry would argue that these outposts were for colonial defense, as such should be paid for by the colonies. From the American perspectives, this amounted to a tax on the colonies to pay for a matter of imperial regulation that was opposed to the interest of the colonies. Now, that was a pretty bitter pill indeed to swallow, and it wasn't settling well with the colonists. So, are you staying with us so far?
0: Okay, so let me get this straight. The, the crown beat the French, right? Yep. The- we, beat, we beat the French. Since the Indians were aligned with the French and we didn't want the Indians to turn on us, the British crown gave them all this stuff, which... Uh, and
1: gave them their land.
0: And gave them their land.
1: Gave, gave them the land. Gave them back yeah.
0: their land, which the American colonists felt had they had rightly won uh, in the French and Indian War as their prize for beating the French. Um, so the Indians came out ahead, but smartly did not entirely trust the government uh, and then um, the colonists wanted to to be able to defend themselves, but the British crown felt like, no, uh, we don't trust you to defend yourselves. How about we protect you uh, and you'll be fine. But And you know one of the ways that we're going to protect you is we're going to put up this big, long border that you're not allowed to go past for your own safety. It's kind
1: of like a flat earther thing. <laughs>
0: You're not allowed to go past this border for your own safety. And oh, we're going to just trade with the people on the other side of this border and the Indians on the other side of this border and y'all just stay over there. And, and guess who's
1: going to pay for it?
0: And 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 so we're going to build this wall and you're going to pay for it. Yeah. Essentially. So
1: <laughs> starting a revolution, I guess, is a pretty complicated thing. So look, we are just at the end of the French in Indian War right now. We haven't even
0: really gotten We're, into we're the not Revolution even getting Act. into it. But
1: hang on, there is more. On April 5th, 1764, King George passed the Sugar and Molasses Act. Now, under the Molasses Act, colonial merchants had been required to pay a tax of six pence per gallon on the importation of foreign molasses. But because of corruption, they mostly, and we're, we're talking about the corruption on the colonist part, it would. You know, we we could call it corruption, or we could call it um, resistance. But because of corruption, they mostly <laughs> evaded taxes and undercut the intention of the tax that the English would um, the product would be cheaper than that from the French West Indies. This hurt the British West Indies market in molasses and sugar, and the market for rum,
0: which Steve drinks in his tea.
1: No, I don't, because I don't even drink tea. <laughs> Which the colonies have been producing in quantity with the cheaper French molasses. Hey, talk about you know, there's not that much difference. Right now in the United States, we're talking about trading with China and yeah. and all this stuff. This stuff, folks, was going on way back then. Let me Same let me,
0: stuff, different continent.
1: Different times, different products. The first Lord of the Treasury and Chancellor of the exchange Lord Grenville was trying to bring the colonies in line with regard to payment of taxes. I guess he was like
0: Okay, in charge of taxes. I would not take him seriously at all. No. Lord of the Treasury, Chancellor of the Exchequer. Yeah. Lord Grenville. Okay. I got some choice words for you, Lord Grenville.
1: Okay, so this guy, Lord Grenville, had beefed up the navy presence and instructed them to become more active in customs enforcement. Parliament, back in Muriel, England, decided to be wise to make a few adjustments to the trade regulations. The Sugar Act reduced the rate of tax on molasses from six pence to three pence per gallon, so they cut the tax in half to try to appease the colonists. Mm -hmm. When Grenville took measures that the duty would be strictly enforced, the act also listed more foreign goods to be taxed, including sugar, certain wines... Coffee, pimento, cambric, and printed calico, and further regulated the export of lumber and iron. So they're just trying to run and control everything that's going on, so which isn't sitting well with the colonists. They, Go ahead.
0: They cut the tax on molasses in half, but they added taxes on sugar, wine, coffee, pimento, cambric, and printed calico.
1: Things just don't change. Hmm. The enforcement tax on molasses caused the almost immediate decline in the rum industry and the colonies. The combined effect of the new duties was to sharply reduce trade with Madeira, the Azores, and the Canary Islands, and the French West Indies. All important destination ports for lumber, flour, cheese, and assorted farm products. So these policies are hurting trade all over this part of British control. The situation disrupted the colonial economy by reducing the markets to which the colonies could sell and the amount of currency available to them for the purchase of goods of British manufactured. So I guess back in the day, it wasn't like right now. I mean, used to the United States was on the the gold standard. So like for every dollar, there was that much gold or silver to back it up. And so now we don't do that, but... Back in the day, you had to have something to back that up. It just wasn't well we need we need a trillion dollars. Let's print some more money. Yeah. There had to be some gold in the vault of Fort Knox to make this happen.
0: but guess what? The king still needed more money So here comes the Stamp Act,
1: which is long and complicated. <sighs> it's like reading through Leviticus here on this or Deuteronomy no, no, or something.
0: Yeah. Did you say Deuteronomy?
1: No. I said Deuteronomy. (laughs) I said it right. Did you? Yeah. Okay. Keep going.
0: Anyway, (laughs) on February 6th, 1765, George Grenville rose in Parliament back in England to offer the 55 resolutions of his stamp bill.
1: Fifty-five.
0: Now, the Stamp Act was Parliament's first serious attempt to assert governmental authority See, over I the colonies. See, I told you, I
1: actually read all these things. I don't understand,
0: understand why, because these... Oh, my gosh. I'm going to read some of these to you guys in just a minute. Um, so, it was, it was the first serious attempt to assert governmental authority over the colonies. Now, yeah, we kind of built a wall and made the colonies pay for it, but at the same time that kind of did also provide a defense for them against the native tribes on the other side of the wall that they had to pay for. Um, so it, it could be argued that that was a governmental um, authority thing, but this is like a real, like we're really getting you this time. Great Britain was faced with a with massive,
1: 55, different 55 proclamations.
0: really boring, long drawn out proclamations. Great Britain was forced with a massive national debt following the Seven Years' War, and that debt has grown from about 72 million pounds in 1755 to over 129 million pounds in 1764.
1: 129,586,789 to be exact.
0: Yeah, in less than 10 years. So English citizens in Britain were taxed at a rate that created a serious threat of revolt. Now, we ain't
1: going to pay your taxes anymore, King George.
0: Right. And we're. I'm just going to go over three of the 54 proclamations. And essentially,
1: they're all the same, they're with just all minor differences. They're all
0: so boring. Okay, so I'm only going to do three. So here's one. For every skin or piece of vellum or parchment or sheet or piece of paper on which shall be engrossed, written, or printed, any declaration, plea, replication, rejoinder, demurrer, or other pleading, or any copy thereof in any court of law within the British colonies and plantations in America, a stamp duty of three pence.
1: That's number one. There's 54 more to come. Why don't we just read them all, Kim?
0: Let's. let's. Okay. Right, so, for every skin or piece of vellum or parchment or sheet or piece of paper on Sounds which familiar. shall be engrossed, written, or printed any special bail... An appearance upon such bail in any such court, a stamp duty of two shillings.
1: We had to be precise.
0: For every skin or piece of vellum or parchment or sheet or piece of paper on which may be engrossed, written or printed any petition, bill, answer, claim, plea, replication, rejoinder, demure, or other pleading, and any court of chancery or equity within the said colonies and plantations, a stamp duty of one shilling and six pence. And it goes on, but you get the idea. This reminds me- That was
1: three of that 55. Was three
0: of 55. This reminds me of when I was a teacher, and I'm not going to say districts or names or anything, but um, when I was a teacher in the public school system- We had a print shop basically that was like in our district office and we were supposed to, like I remember one day I got an email from the teacher's union saying if you have more than, if you need to make more than 50 copies of something, you have to send it to the print office. You are not allowed to make more than 50 copies in your building. You, by agreement that we have hammered out the union officials have hammered out with the school district, you have to send more than 50 copies to the print office. Now, the print you know shop.
1: I can understand why that happened.
0: I, yeah, but at the same time, like, that's what this reminds me of. Like, pettiness of that scale of, you know, if you're going to use a piece of paper at all, you need to pay for it.
1: Well, you have to get your pence from somewhere. Yeah, so, well. They needed more money. Because they're still paying for all the the French and Indian War and 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 the post-war and everything that's happening afterwards. So then Old King George says, let's hit them up with the Quartering Act. So basically, the Quartering Act says, because the crown may now have enough resources or may not have enough resources in the colonies, it may be necessary for the colonists to put up, feed, and basically provide for the British soldiers. We who,
0: mentioned this earlier. Yeah,
1: who they didn't like anyway. Right. Because the British didn't trust them, and they were just a bunch of rowdy, uh, troublemaking colonists. Yep. So if you want to look this one up, it is very, very detailed. And if we, if we started to try to do that, it it would put you to sleep, <laughs> and then it would faster take us... Faster
0: than the Stamp Act.
1: It Faster than the Stamp Act, and we would need three or four episodes just to cover pre-revolution needless to say the colonists are getting pretty fed up right now with with old king george in england
0: gee i can't imagine why
1: yeah on may 29th of 1765 patrick henry gave his famous give me liberty or give me death speech radical is the way that patrick henry was described it was a title given to patrick henry the name Patrick Henry, during the revolution, and for some time after, was synonymous with that word, with them and with the minds of the colonists and Great Britain alike. so, so he he was he was fiery
0: and it's interesting how history changes things, like how, uh, you know, back in the seventeen hundreds, Patrick Henry was a radical, no matter which side of the fence you were on. And now he is a patriot and a hero.
1: Well, he was then, too. Well,
0: yeah, but I mean, yeah. it's just it's interesting that we don't necessarily today think of him as a radical. We think of him as a founding father. And back then, he was just this crazy guy spouting off.
1: Yeah. So Patrick Henry's reputation as a passionate and fiery orator exceeded even that of Samuel Adams. Patrick Henry is famous for his Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech. So Kim is going to read you the last paragraph of the of this very famous speech
0: it is in vain sir to extenuate the matter gentlemen may cry peace peace but there is no peace the war is actually begun the next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms our brethren are already in the field why stand we here idle what is it the gentlemen wish would they have what would they have Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death.
1: So I could imagine him standing there in the public house or wherever he was.
0: With a mug of ale. Of of Sam Adams,
1: (laughs) a pint of Sam Adams beer. And I, I imagine that got people pretty fired up and, uh, yeah, and I, stirred.
0: I can picture him like standing on hey, a table.
1: it's talk like that that led to the revolution.
0: As it should. That's an awesome speech. I love it.
1: Yeah, and it's still being quoted in memes today.
0: It's so good.
1: Yeah. Uh, his Stamp Act resolutions were arguably the first shot heard in the Revolutionary War. The colonists passed two Stamp Act resolutions one by Virginia, and one by the, the newly formed Congress. Basically, these resolutions said, we are being represented, and we aren't paying your taxes. So they told King George, shove of it up yours, your King shove it up your butt, King George. Uh,
0: you stick it, it, your stamps where the sun it, it, don't shine. shine.
1: Yeah, because we aren't paying your taxes anymore.
0: And you can't stay with us anymore either. Get out.
1: So you can imagine, right now, the colonists are getting fired up. The loyalists aren't listening to this talk, and especially
0: the things p- are a little tense.
1: King King George and the British Army—they are not liking what they're about, what what they're hearing right now.
0: Yeah. So then, on March eighteenth, seventeen sixty-six, Britain declared the Declaratory Act, uh, and so all of these grumblings. Um, push them into action. So the act essentially said that the colonies don't have any rights or authority over Parliament. And and I quote, it says, and be it further declared that all resolutions, votes, orders, and proceedings in any of the said colonies or plantations whereby the power and authority of the Parliament of Great Britain to make laws and statutes as aforesaid, aforesaid is, is denied or drawn into question are and are hereby declared to be Utterly null and void to all intents and purposes whatsoever. So in other words, uh, King George said, you know what, just sit down. Sit down and just be quiet. We don't have to listen to what you say. You're just a bunch of piddly little colonists. I am King George. And then the British stirred the pot a little bit more with the Townsend Revenue Act on June 29th, 1767. That act... Pass because we're already taxing paper uh, with the Stamp Act. With the Stamp Act, so now this act passes tax past taxes on glass, paint, oil, lead, more paper. So not just stamps, but paper and tea. Ooh, yeah, that's kind of a big one. Um, and these were applied with the design of raising forty thousand pounds a year for the administration of the colonies. So basically, like, everything is taxed at this point. Um, And the result was the resurrection of colonial hostilities created by the Stamp Act. Because now, if there's one thing I know about British people...
1: They like their tea. They
0: like their tea. Whether they be on the home continent or in the New World, Britons like their tea. So the reaction assumed revolutionary proportions in Boston. And in the summer of 1768, when customs officials impounded a sloop owned by John Hancock uh, for violations of the trade regulations, crowds mobbed the customs office, forcing the officials to retire a British warship in the harbor. And troops from England and Nova Scotia marched in to occupy Boston on October 1st, 1768. The Bostonians, however, offered no resistance. Instead, they changed their tactics. They established non-importation agreements that quickly spread throughout the colonies, and British trade soon dried up, and the powerful merchants of Britain once again interceded on behalf of the colonies.
1: All right, so here we are. We're really leading up to... It's
0: getting tense. It's,
1: It's getting really, really tense. And this is probably a good place for us to stop in part one of the pre-revolution because next week and the next episode, it's going to get into a lot more things that you'll probably be more familiar with, with the Boston Massacre and the Tea tea Party party. and some things like that as we lead up to the shot heard around the world. So it's it's really heating up. I, I hope that we've been able to bring this out in a little bit more than the fourth grade level that we'd learn, it's really complicated, and it's really, really fascinating to me, it is, at least.
0: Yeah, and I I, I wasn't a huge fan of Patrick Henry before, not just because I didn't know a lot about Patrick Henry, but I am now, and hopefully you are too, because he's a great speaker.
1: Yeah, orator. Orator. Yeah, I mean, could you imagine him writing that and then delivering that and presenting that? Yeah,
0: Uh, no, I would... uh, I get chills just reading it.
1: Yeah, it's. A, I I want to go back now and read more of his writings yeah, and things. Go like for that. it. They're yeah. out
0: there in the world on the internet. You have the entire world at your fingertips, guys. Go learn.
1: Okay, so we are done with part one of the pre-revolution. You'll have to come back next week and listen to part two as we lead lead you up into the shot heard around the world. Yeah, Kim, you got anything else for us tonight?
0: Uh no, not necessarily. Uh you can find us out on the big wa- wide web of the world. Uh Facebook an hour of your life, um Instagram an hour of your life, Twitter a lost hour and gmail is a lost hour at gmail.com so send us thoughts ideas anything that you um qu- questions if you have any questions specifically about the revolutionary war that you want us to answer like things that you just never really understood or things that you've forgotten about and you want us to go over again
1: you want me to do the research forum i thought it was do your, do research, your research and, and educate and yourself
0: Fact check us but if there's anything that you really want us to cover um shoot us an email a yep. lost hour
1: at gmail.com. righty. So here we are. Oh, one last thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We decided before the show that as uh, the sources, oh, since yeah. it's a two-parter, we're not going to read the sources after this episode. You
0: gotta come so back So if next you week.
1: really want to learn where the if you're still actually listening to it <laughs> after this after the music, if you don't know at the end of the show, after the the music, could we call that the postlude? Sure. Okay, so after the postlude of music, we always read the sources. We we've been trying not to uh, cite sources during the show
0: because that gets boring.
1: Yeah, but we we always want to give credit where credit is due. Yeah. So we always cite our sources at the end of the show. So we always stick around after the postlude, after the music, to hear the sources. But right. don't do it today because it's, it's like not going to happen. Movie. All right. So from our beautiful studios in Sugar Creek, Ohio.
0: Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us.
1: No sources this week got to listen next week
0: come back